Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I'm so excited to have the guest that we have on today because one of the things we try to do here at Let's Be Blunt is make sure that we keep you up to date with some of the most up to date information, especially in the cannabis and hemp space. So that, you know, when you go out and you make choices for your family or yourself and you go to dispensaries, you need to help have some information to help you navigate you know, that environment and understand when, when you're making purchases, you're making good purchases for yourself or your family. And so I'm excited because today we're going to be talking with the author of the newly published book, The Brain on Cannabis, What You Should Know About Recreational Medical Marijuana. She's a clinical psychiatrist specializing in adult, child, and adolescent psychotherapy and psychopharmacology. Her practice includes the evaluation of and treatment of depression, mood disorders, attention deficit disorders, learning disabilities, Asperger's, and autism spectrum disorders, and she's a licensed prescriber of medical cannabis in the state of New York. Dr. Rebecca Siegel, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montella today. Thanks for being a guest. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. No, thank you. Look, let's let's start before we go into detail about your book for a minute. Let's start and back up and tell me about your background and your practice. Absolutely. So I am a, like you, you, you gave me a wonderful introduction. Thank you. <laughs> I, I um, went to medical school, actually, I went to medical school when I was 29 years old. So I had a whole life before. Um, and I actually had kids while I was in medical school. I have three wonderful daughters um, and they're in their uh, 20s. And one my last one is, is 16. Um, but so I actually went into medicine thinking I'd be a pediatrician. And it turned out a very, in, uh, it turned, um, you know, out in a very different but wonderful way. But while I was there, I realized psychiatry was something that really appealed to me and actually could could be a wonderful lifestyle for me and having three kids, which, you know, was very appealing. Um, and I've been a practicing psychiatrist for quite a while, like 17 years or so. And um, I cannabis is a new thing for me and i am evolving in this ecosystem and i am i am learning um and i actually just i watched your wonderful podcast interviews with dr benjamin kaplan and nikki lolly i watched them yesterday and i and the, the discussions that you had with them uh, they increased my understanding tremendously i'm still learning and that is why it's it's the adage of see one do and teach one that we learned in medical school so I listened, and now I can take that information, add it to what I already know what I, and in my practice, and put it out there to increase awareness and educate people. Well, let's, let's start there in the education standpoint, because, I mean, you went to medical school back, you said, 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, I'm sure that the medical profession and schools were teaching just, you know, I, I want to say just false information and misguided information about or nothing. Or nothing at all. Nothing. Panels, right? Yeah. Talk about I that. Learned, I learned nothing. <laughs> and I, I very much I understood what, what you know Dr. Kaplan was saying when I when I listened to the podcast that basically there was nothing that they taught because it was not thought of as a any type of medic, medicine or medication or as an option. And that is what I feel has to change. And that's and that's interesting. You said that it wasn't taught as a medicine or even as an option. Where we know that you know, depending on who you read, I mean, we've heard from thirty five hundred to four thousand years ago, it was always included as a medical substance in you know cornucopia of different medical writings from China to you know North America to Africa to all over the world. You know, shaman, shaman, or doctors at the time looked at this plant and saw a reason for it to be used medically. And, you know, a little bit more back then than recreationally. So does it not strike you as odd that all of a sudden now, and I think what I'm just so excited about the fact that there's more and more research coming out every single day. Um, You know, and I am such a proponent of that. And that is what I push in my book for more research more research to be done, right? So but that you know, helps physicians. 
But what's crazy about it is that the, the research has been done. I mean, we know that there are over yes. 35,000 peer-reviewed study documents. It's that somehow, have it's somehow huh? not getting out there to, to physicians, right? And it's physicians who I want to educate so that they will understand and they will be able to help their patients. And even if they don't uh, want to be involved with certifying or prescribing it, at least they should think of it as an option and then, you know, give their patients good information, but also information that maybe they know of somebody who can help them. And that's what I would like to be able to do. Also, just having the knowledge of what your patient might be doing. I mean, I think well, you know, that's bigger for the better. That's that's better for the bigger picture. I mean, you know, I've got a patient, even if you're a doctor who doesn't agree with science, because now we do have all these science doubters in the world, science doubters from global warming, science doubters from, you know, COVID, even looking at the last three weeks, there's been so much written about COVID and the fact that now researchers in multiple places, not just Oregon, California, Germany have all now independently recognized that there are certain cannabinoids, you know, and, and and some of the minor cannabinoids that literally have the ability to block, uh, you know, the spike protein from entering the cells. This is real data, and right. you know, just on a, on a conversation with uh, I won't name the names, but with a former secretary of the VA, who's a physician himself, who didn't know that there's been at least 20 different documents passed in the last three weeks published that discusses COVID and cannabis. Now, why is that? I mean, it's crazy. Let me go back to the, the idea that the public is kind of uninformed, right? And you want to put out good information and, and definitely that kind of breakthrough is huge, but that what the public hears is that, Cannabis can cure COVID, and cannabis to most means THC, psychoactive. So they think, well, getting high can cure COVID. But that is definitely not what anyone wants to put out there, right? We want good information that it's the CBD and the anti-inflammatory properties of CBD and THC and all the minor cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system in our own bodies. These are all things that I learned within the last four years. I was clueless in many ways, unaware. And I said, oh my goodness, like when a patient came to me and asked if I could you know, help her through and do this for her, I said, I don't know. I really, I, like Nikki Lolly, grew up in the you know, the 80s where it was the war on drugs, your brain on drugs, right? And so right. I had to change my attitudes about it too. And right then and there, pretty much, I realized I had to write a book, which was huge because I'm not the book writing type. <laughs> well, you know, and and, and you, you nailed it. It's the fact that, you know, CBD, THC, but, you know, we know depending on, again, you know, where you look at the research, if you look in Canada, you look in in. Israel, you know, the numbers are anywhere between 160 and 260 different cannabinoids and variants to it. You know, there is CBD, but not all CBD is the same. There's CBDA, the CBDV, and each one of those constituent minor cannabinoids have different responses that they elicit and then agonize in our own endocannabinoid system forcing either, you know, a greater response of an anamide or 2-AG. And so I think that, you know, one of the biggest problems, this is one of the things I've said from day one, I've been involved in this space now for 20 years. And from day one, I've said that our industry has done itself the biggest disfavor and uh, because we don't spend enough time. We try to spend so much time in a B2B situation where we're trying to see how fast everybody can get rich rather than trying to educate the consumer and allowing the the consumer to make good decisions and good choices and giving them the information that they can do it with. And so, you know, I think we're just still scratching the surface. You know, we're, we're like the Wright brothers pushing that wooden plane down a hill uh, when it comes to cannabis, because in 10 years from now, we're going to find out that, oh, my goodness, if we had really looked at this the appropriate way that we look at other plant medications, we could have been, been solving many issues. Like you had said earlier, it's not just THC or it's it's not the THC, but in 
Israel, they've been doing research with the THCV and THCA and recognizing that THC does have a medical implication in the body. It's that all those cannabinoids coming together. We recognize now that THCA may have the ability to block the blood source of certain types of cancer cells, right? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. These are all huge, huge implications for all of this. Absolutely. Correct. So now, when, so you said uh, about four years ago, you started being introduced to cannabis. When did you become a believer in cannabis and, and a believer in it even being a part of a medical conversation? Well, definitely when my patient came to me and said this had cured her insomnia, she found the cure for her, right? And that's why I always say, you know, cannabis is not a one size fits all. It can be very helpful for some, and but I have also seen as a medical practitioner how it may not be helpful for others, which right. I think you talk about also in your journey with cannabis, right, where it had been helpful and then it stopped being and you had to figure it out and, you know, do different kinds of balances of THC and CBD and, the you know, all the, the terpenes and everything like that. Um, people don't get that, right? But so, you know, I see it as my kind of role to if people want me to, I can't make people come to me with, you know, give them the knowledge that I have, but it it definitely helped her. And I said, wow, how do I get involved with this field? And so I'm in New York, you know, and I'm in New York city and I went and looked, I knew it was medically legal. Right. So that was a huge thing that I should learn, but that I didn't know anything about it, how to practice it, how to certify for it. Was I just going to write a prescription? I didn't know. But all you kind of needed to do at that point was you had to have an active medical license, a DEA license, and you had to take a course. It was a four-hour course online teaching me about the basics of cannabis, which, you know, I did in, I think, an hour, right? Because I was I was excited. I wanted to learn. <laughs> and that course didn't even include a discussion about the endocannabinoid system, did it? It taught me nothing. I mean, it taught me the beginnings but I knew I needed to learn more if I was going to help people. And so that I actually then wanted to, I, I found a medical cannabis conference at UCLA, which that was in 2018. And I went to that, that conference and I saw, um, you know, Dr. Mishulam and I saw all these sort of the really big researchers in medical cannabis. And they, it, it just in, increased and spiked my interest and I became a definite believer in there were things that it could be so incredibly helpful for. And then as I put myself out there in that space, I had patients coming to me who, you know, definitely asked for my help and how, you know, MS, um, certainly chronic pain and PTSD. And I treated many vets, you know, well, whether military vets or whether vets of, you know, September 11, all kinds of PTSD, you know, issues, um, a can, a cancer, chemo treatments. I've, I have seen a whole range and spectrum of how it can be helpful for people. But with the caveat, I have also seen how it might not be so helpful for some. Correct. Well, tell us about your book, The Brain on Cannabis, What You Should Know About Recreational and Medical Marijuana. Talk a little bit about that. Well, so it's been, it's really my journey through understanding the ecosystem of cannabis and how I can educate people, you know, increase awareness. And it's very, it's very much my clinical experiences through it. And also, you know, educating people. Um, But different people came to me and I saw how it was incredibly helpful. I saw how it was not one size fits all and not everybody, let's say, wanted to get high or, or put things through their lungs Whereas, you know, they they wanted to learn about other types of modes of delivery and how 
um, you know, different ratios of THC to CBD could be more helpful, you know, and I had to learn myself, right? And I just, I, de I basically did a deep dive into trying to understand it better. And it's, and this is now four years later, where, you know, the book took me about four years. Um, it was, it was very interesting because I had a, a huge, huge uh, network of support, you know, getting this book out there with, you know, uh, Dan, I don't know if you know, I, I work at Amen Clinic, where uh, Daniel Amen is the founder of that clinic in Orange County. Um, right. And and he has been, he wrote the forward to my book, and he definitely, you know, has a very unique perspective on cannabis and substances of abuse, but he's trying to, you know, he's learning and being, I am trying to educate him and have him be more open-minded toward the benefits of cannabis. And I've, I've had some conversations with Dr. Ammon myself, and uh, as a matter of fact, also was actually um, uh, spec uh, scanned in his yes. uh, uh, center in New York. Uh, this is back when I was, you know, began a protocol using something else that I wanted to have research, and and his his data is is profound. Um, I had disagreed with him a little bit on his take on cannabis, but but I think some of that has been because. You know, again, it's not his fault. It's what our medical community taught for so many years that it's hard to. I've I've heard, you know, some of the top neurologists, one of the top neurologists in this country, said to me that Montel, you know, any transformative treatment protocol in medicine is normally met with the most vehement and adamant resistance, and that's I think what we see here because we've had people who have been been ingrained thinking that there was something negative about something that has, was positive for thousands of years. And only because of, you know, a single individual and a group of people in the United States that decided that they wanted to vilify this, even after they had been supporters of it. People don't know that, you know, Henry Anslinger or Harry Anslinger was a supporter of right. cannabis when he was running around the country, you know, as a prohibitionist. But it wasn't until he lost his job that he figured out I need something else and joined in the entire racist diatribe about cannabis. And that's really what set this on the path that it went on and even vilifying hemp. Um, so, you know, exactly. And there's still places that vilify hemp, which is mind blowing to me. It's absolutely ridiculous to me. Um, and especially since, again, in the last, what is it, the last 10 years, there's been over 35,000 peer reviewed articles published in 35,000. There's more documentation research done on cannabis than it's done on aspirin. There's more I, research. I think you are doing such incredible work and in advocating for this and getting it out there and that people should hear and understand and listen and want to learn and want to be aware and you know be educated. But I, I think, look, I do take the message that Daniel Amen puts out there that, you know, you you want to be very careful and cautious about while your brain is still developing, Correct. right? That's, and we don't, you know, who realizes that people's brains are still developing in their mid twenties, right. right? And we want our brains with us in the moment, but we also want our brains working for us, you know, uh, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years later. Right. And Correct. nobody thinks about that, but it's, it's just being, you know, using a, uh, something in moderation, everything in balance and moderation and understanding what you're doing and what you're putting into your body will, will impact your brain in every way. Right. Correct. And we've now, but now talk a little bit about, you've done a lot of extensive research into how medical cannabis can be utilized for things like ADHD for spectrum disease and spectrum disorders. Talk a little bit about that. No, well, it's, it's mind blowing to me that people would say to me, actually, cannabis helps me focus better. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm not going to doubt what somebody says to me, you know, I believe them. Right. So it's, it's listening to the, cl the clinical stories. And that is what I took from Dr. Benjamin Kaplan in, in his discussion with you, that maybe the research that we do has to, the paradigm have to, has to shift a little bit that the research with cannabis has to be on a more individual basis. We collect data from everyone we treat. Everyone is an individual. You know, every like medication impacts people differently. Cannabis and and you know other types of of you know 
alternative therapies and impact people's bodies and brains differently. Physicians need to understand that. It's and there is not a one size fits all. Yeah, it's not a one size fits all. And in some cases, it seems to help some people with spectrum in the spectrum. Some cases, it doesn't help other people in the spectrum, right? And same thing well, with ADHD. Well, the 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 um the revolution with, that started, you know, with realizing that kids with Lennox-Gastaut or Dravet syndrome, you know, with terrible seizure disorders, were helped by CBD. That was a revolution in my mind. And Sanjay Gupta put that out there. You put that out there. I mean, that was transformative for me. And then when Epidiolex, you know, the FDA-approved medication, and there are FDA-approved medications that may help some, may not help others, right? Um, but that, that this was transformative for me to understand this. I had no idea. So it's it's mind-blowing in my own education. And 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 I I find that it is the what what do you think the mechanism is? I mean, we do understand when we look at the endocannabinoid system, and I don't think that the research has been completely filled out when it comes to the endocannabinoid system because we do recognize that, you know, that system is there to help keep and modulate and keep the cells in our body operating basically, you know, in in you know, they call it the Goldilocks zone, you know what I mean? Right. Operating in uh, a homeostasis. Homeostasis, exactly. Absolutely. So if we know that there was a system that's not just in us, but in all mammals that keeps ourselves operating at optimal level, and we know that the plant-based cannabinoids actually stimulate, I'll use the word stimulate instead of agonize, but stimulate our own body's ability to produce our endocannabinoids that actually do that homeostasis. It seems like to it me- It should be a revolution in my mind right. to understand this and physicians should understand this. Absolutely. And, and But I would understand that that not everyone's would work the same way. It's just like, you know, I can, I can eat a little olive oil and it may affect me differently than it affects the next person. So we know that the external plant-based cannabinoids will affect everybody individually a little differently, right? But there's no reason for us to not want to look at that. It's almost as if they just say, well, I'll throw it out. It's too hard to understand. It's not too hard to understand. No, we, but we just need to be collecting the data. Right. And need a uniform collection of data that will help us into a large database. And I know that Dr. Kaplan, is, you know, has one or is starting one, which is huge. Which is huge. Well, and you know, in your practice, when let's say you know a mother comes to you or a parent comes to you with a child, and they, you know, are thinking and they're thinking out of the box, and they say, "Well, do you think that cannabis could help my child who who suffers from one of the spectrum disorders?" What do you say to them? How do you how do you kind of navigate that space? Well, I want to understand certainly the the child, the individual, what they you know whether they are if they're autism spectrum, but what else they've got going on. You know, you have to understand that. What if they are if they have other medical conditions or if they're on other medications or you know that type of thing because that's not good medical practice to not understand your patient, and so you have to absolutely get that basic information before, but also, you know, you need to be, you need to make them aware of what, you know, what it might do, but what it might not do and what it might, you know, like if there are any kinds of side effects, but I think that it is a, a life-changing option for sure, for some, right. And I'm, and I definitely have recommended it. Absolutely have, um, you know, within what I'm able to do. And thankfully, you know, in New York, you can have someone be your proxy, you know, if you're on, if you are a minor, but, you know, I, I absolutely am very cautious in, and, and I am very cautious as a physician, you know, first do no harm is the first tenet of medicine. You know, start low, go slow. That is my approach to medication, my approach to cannabis, you know, in every way. Go slow. So would you, I mean, when you recommend something to somebody, do you say, do you have a particular dispensary that you work with? Do you work with particular brands or, or strains? Do you uh, try to suggest, you know, like, you know, I've been, I've been in this space for quite a long time now. And, you know, I, I, it wasn't until I had produced a couple of products myself 
that have been that people have been copying a little bit of in the marketplace where I, you know, I approach it as not and from even for myself, not all day long do I need to have, you know, something that causes any baseline euphoria whatsoever. I need something that actually has more of, I think, an anti-inflammatory response. And I use that in a big, broad, general term because inflammation is affects us throughout our bodies in different ways, affects our brain in different ways. So, I mean, for me, there are times in a day when I try to make sure that I am using a, a formulation where it's, say, 75% CBD and 25% THC by volume, and I ensure that there are certain serpents in that. But then there are other times during a day when, you know, I, I maybe I had a hard day. I didn't have any oils in my diet. So if I didn't have any oils in my diet, that means that I probably slowed down the bioavailability of the cannabis in my body. And so I might need a little bit more THC to elicit the same response that I got from a lesser THC. Do you look at it that way when you try to formulate for, for your Absolutely. Absolutely. But you are so informed and aware and you know these things. And most people do not understand this at all. And so I do believe that it takes a knowledgeable physician who is understanding of the same things you are understanding of bioavailability and, you know, not wanting to necessarily be high, but having to, uh, you know, use the proper ratio. And that might take time to figure out and it might change, might change over time. Right. As the body gets used to things, as kids grow and, you know, their bodies, you know, you grow and you gain weight. And we say we outgrow your dose. You have to figure things out. Right. So it's definitely a learning process, but you have to help people, you know, to understand that you you understand more than anybody, I'd say. No, thank you. I I, well, you know, again, this has been a 20-year journey for me. So you're at the four-year mark. I mean, it, it's taken me 20 years to be able to pull all this data together and then sit down and try to think about it. I'd love than, to pick your brain. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Um, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit about those cases when it didn't work. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, again, not one size fits all. And so... THC or, or cannabis isn't good for everyone. It's not something that there are some people who can, you know, you, you, you hear about them and you, I've talked to people who literally take, you know, an infinitesimal amount of, of, uh, they may be somewhere and they say, well, I, I literally put it to my mouth, barely inhaled. And I'm telling you, I was so paranoid and freaked out. I couldn't. And I said, but that's, that's one, there's two reasons for that happening. One is, you know, your endocannabinoid system was one. People don't understand this. The first time you ingest plant-based cannabis, it is a boom to that endocannabinoid system. It bangs it all throughout your body. Now, some of us get a knockout punch. Some of us get a little tap on the cheek. You're one of those people who got the knockout punch. If it's something that you want to try again, I would suggest to you that you do it with some other people around you and you do it in a setting where you can be calm so you're not afraid of it. And because your psychology will actually play a bigger role in this also. I mean, how you think at that moment. But and then you just, you said it, I think you nailed it. You know, one of the things about cannabis is once you got it in, you can't get it out. So it's got to go out on its own. It's got to go ahead and dissipate on its own. So the bigger the initial dose, the harder it is to overcome. So you need to like really just, just baby step yourself up and you may find that it may work differently for you. I saw I've said to people before. And I think at every age that can be the case. And right. definitely I, my, my concern is certainly, you know, teens and adolescents, and it is so out there now. And everywhere you walk in New York, you, you know, it, it's decriminalized. So people are, you know, they're there. You can smell it, you know, right. when I walk down the street to walk my dog, right. and, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, I hope that they're using this in an appropriate way. Right. Um, first, but also, you know, it's so potent, it's so much more potent than it was, you know, and, you know, I don't want to worry that, right, like anyone whose endocannabinoid system can't tolerate it, I, and I can relate, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can tremendously relate that you, you don't want to feel so anxious that you think you might die, or right. you, you run to the emergency room because, right, you think that you're having a heart attack, or, you know, and I've, I've had people like that come to me. 
I've also had people come to me who, um, you know, thought that or their families worried so much about them that they thought they may have been, you know, like pushed towards psychosis. You know, and these are also things that are out there and that we need to understand just a little better. And there's a small percentage of people in our community that literally can have a close to psychotic um, event, right? Triggered by cannabinoids, right? Yes. And we need to understand more about why that might happen so that, you know, whatever it, it is genetics or environment, whatever it might be, we can prevent that. Because as physicians, you know, that's that's my goal is to be aware and to influence how people see this, you know, this cannabis as an option, but to be safe about it. Yeah, now there are there's some mixed reviews out there. What's your opinion on the impact of cannabis and depression? Because there are mixed reviews. I've read, you know, some uh, reports that say that they don't think that cannabis works at all for depression. And I think that's also just a little bit overstated when people say that. Um, However, for some people, it doesn't work at all. Um, What's your view on cannabis and depression? Well, no, I think like you said it, that there are people who are stuck in their ideas about what cannabis and other types of medication can do. Um, You know, and and if you're stuck in that and you can't um, hear where, you know, people are saying to me, this does help me. I hear it. I'm, I, I am open to it. Right. I, like I said before, it's not a one size fits all, you know, it has to be an option for people. I, I definitely say people need an op- people need options and people need a purpose. Right. And that's what will be helpful for people in their lives. And so if people feel like they have no options and this, has, this can help and it's done correctly, safely in my mind as a medical, you know, provider, why wouldn't you want to help somebody in the appropriate, safe way? Right. Do you, when you, and please, if you, this is a question that you don't want to answer, you don't have to answer. But now do you have, do you have patients like, you know, leave your office, go to a dispensary, get their order, come back after they've consumed and then work with them in their, whatever state they are in just to see if you can help guide them through their journey? Or do you, you tell them to go home and then write it down in a book and come back and tell me about it? How do you do that? Well, it, it also depends on what they want to do. Because once they get to the dispensary, I'm in a way out of the picture, whether right. it's the pharmacist there or the bud tender there who's giving them the advice. I mean, I can absolutely put it out there that I want to help you and I want to, and I also want to learn from you know everyone's individual experience. But that's up to the patient. Right. But I definitely put it out there that I'm very, you know, happy to be involved. Just like I would do for as I am a pharmacist, you know, psychopharmacologist, I will follow people. I put it out there that I do want to follow if they want me to help. And have you witnessed, I mean, uh, clearly you'll have a patient, maybe you've had one or two patients that have gone out, consumed, come back to you and say, what do you think? How do you think I'm acting? I mean, what do you what do you see when you do that? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that I that I see patients. There are people who come to me saying, I've never tried this. I think it's a great, you know, like, I really want to see if it can help me. Then there are others who say, you know, I've, I've tried this. It wasn't right. Can you help me, like, figure out a path? And I will say, well, absolutely. You know, maybe the mode of delivery you were using was not right. You know, why, you know, I worry about people vaping or smoking, you know, putting it through their lungs. You know, what, what can that do? You know, I, I try to think about using, um, you know, edibles or oral, you know, cannabis, tincture, things like that. I, I think of the wide spectrum, right? And there's definitely, you know, not everybody is aware of it. And going to a dispensary, a medical dispensary, I'm not allowed to go there with them. So they have to go on their own. And then if they want to, you know, come back to me and say, help, I'm more than willing, right? You know, I, but I, I am a solo, you know, practitioner in that way and you know so people people have the um you know they have to decide how they want to my help you know that, that that's one of the very interesting points that you put out because you know what happens is and and i guess now which i'm i'm becoming a little bit more aware of and i've been happier certain states like in massachusetts 
you know, they require the bud tender before they can be employed to actually go through a class and through some, some training. And then they are evaluated for a while before they're allowed to actually, you know, fulfill an order for some places of people. But in other places in the country, it's like, you know, Bobby Babuto down the corner is the guy who's going, right. yeah, I tried that last night. You got to try this. And, you know, sending people sometimes in different places in the country on journeys that they shouldn't be on. What's your view on, you know, how we could better, you know, change the laws and, and help individuals? That's the reason why I do this podcast is because I, I want to give information out to people that will help them navigate the space when they walk in that door. So they don't have to rely on some uneducated person who's just, uh, you know, throwing out garbage. Cause I I've literally been in some places where, you know, I've walked into a dispatcher or two and I hear this butt tender store. Well, you know, it's because of that endocannabinoid system. And I recognize he doesn't even know what he's talking about. What, what, and I said, well, what is that? Well, you know, it's these, these fibers in your body. It's not a fiber. Stop. You know, but, uh, but I won't say that. It's like, clearly you just, somebody threw you a, a, a buzz line and that's what you were saying. What do you well, think about how we should change the laws and, and, and maybe require more training? Well, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, if I ran the world, if I could require, I mean, I know that the process that I had to go through to, be able to certify patients for, you know, to be able to, to certify them to receive medical cannabis, I didn't feel it was enough. You know, I wanted to learn more. That is not necessarily how all physicians feel, right? But I know that that was my feeling. And I really believe that, that anyone in, in a pharmacy, you know, a dispensary should have more education than what was given me and them. I think they received the same type of education. I didn't feel it was enough. How could it be, right? So, you know, you may be going on what, right, what you've tried in your past and to then impart it to, to people coming in. I'm not sure that's the best way. I think right. that, yes, would it be under the guidance of a physician? And then at, at that point, if they wanted, the physician could then start t- collecting their data about what was helpful to them. So we get, we build up individual databases to be able to help others, right? Absolutely. Tell, tell me a little bit about what your, your opinion is on cannabis and let's say treating MS. Now, you know, I literally gravitated towards cannabis because of my MS diagnosis, which helped me to get away from the opioids that were being prescribed to me, which I needed to get away from at the time. But then, you know, it, it, it wasn't just like that's an immediate cure. I had to literally start digging in and finding out uh, on my own from a research standpoint what literally was helping me, and you said it clearly when you came on, my journey has been, you know, almost like a roller coaster. There's been times when I could use more THC. There's been times when I've used less THC. There's been times when, you know, um, CBD by itself and some terpenes and other things have helped me as much as any of the other things that I've used. And then there's times when it's like hit a wall. It didn't work at all. So then I had to go back and revert back and try to find individual strains. And I've, I've kind of put together a profile for myself that, you know, when I go out looking for things, I look for things that are in that profile. If I can't find it, I won't bother with it because it's really a waste of my time. I my objective wasn't to walk in the room and get high. My objective was to see if I could, you know, mitigate and lessen some of the symptoms that I was having. Um, but but I, there's one thing I do know about MS, and that is that just like there are probably over a million and a half people, contrary to what you know, National MS Society and those people say about people in the United States, there's probably a million and a half to two million people in the United States alone that have already been diagnosed with MS. And almost all two million of us strive through this illness differently. Because, it, you know, not any one of us has the exact or any two of us have the exact same set of symptoms. Um, and so what works for me may not work for you or may not work for this person. What do you think about uh, cannabis and MS and, and whether or not it's just something that, because I've, I've had lots of people, I'll tell you, they come to this podcast who have MS and are looking to see if they can do the same thing I do. And I say, stop, do not try to do what I do. You need to figure this out for you. And every one of us is different. But what do you think? I think that you're incredible for what you have done 
for yourself in learning and understanding your body and understanding your illness and understanding how it could be helpful to you and realizing that, right, the, it's not one size fits all and things evolve and change. Not Most people don't want to do that. Most people either will come to a doctor and say, help me, give me a prescription, tell me, cure me, right? And that is may not be possible. But I think that do I see it as an option? And I have definitely had multiple people, and, and I know multiple people, you know, struggling with MS, and everyone's MS is different. But have I seen it be helpful for people with MS? Absolutely. Um, you know, so like I am a, I am a big proponent of having it be an option, 100%, but to understand, you know, why are you looking for this to help you? How can it help you? you know, right. being, being balanced and in moderation about everything, right? Right. I mean, because I know, like, for me, early on, mine is, you know, I, I focused my cannabis use to try to mitigate two things. One was, you know, I, I, I had less, what is restless leg syndrome on steroids, mm-hmm. anyway. I had that for a while, where I literally, at night, I, it was almost like I was running a race. I mean, my legs would kick so much where I would cramp up and lock up. It, while I was sleeping, locked so hard that, you know, after about five minutes of that still asleep, I would wake up in excruciating pain from just my muscles being locked in a particular position. And I started finding out early on that, well, you know what, smoking doesn't help this. Eating it helps this. If I were to eat something with cannabis in it, you know, and, and made sure that the ratios of THC and CBD were okay, and I ate that maybe an hour before I went to bed, that seemed to help. But then I was always playing with those ratios. And then there came a time when all of a sudden, I will tell you that eating it didn't do a damn thing for me. I ended up having to smoke at night and 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 literally get it in as quickly as I could. So I was trying to make sure that I, I, I right before, before I laid down in bed, I'd have a vape pen or something right beside my bed and literally take a little hit before I laid down. That seemed to knock it out, get me to sleep. And then if, I, let's say, it came back three hours later, I just roll over, take another little hit, go right back to sleep. So that worked for about three or four years. And then I went back to eating. And now, you know, after, you know, now 20 years of this, in the last three years, I have not had to do it at all before I go to sleep. And as a matter of fact, I've noticed that sometimes if I consume even a little bit too close to going to sleep, my mind is on fire at four o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. I'm solving the world's issues while I'm trying to sleep. And I don't need to do that. <laughs> right. So you see exactly that things change and evolve and you have to be aware. Right. Right. And actually, I was just talking to a patient before that you and I are, you know, have, have our, our discussions about the, the Levo um, machine where you can, mm-hmm. um, you know, use it to take the, she said decarb herbs and infuse mm-hmm. them into oil or butter. And she's thrilled. And this is changing her life right. you know, for her chronic pain and her PTSD. So I listen and I learn from everybody that right. I interact with. And that is where I feel I am so lucky and so appreciative just that I listen and I learn. And then I try to help and impart it to others. Yeah, trying to share it with others. Some people say, "Well, look, at this and that's 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 almost always my approach. I don't know if this is going to work for you. I do know that it worked for this person, but now what you have to do is try to figure out where your space is in this. And again, always remembering less is more. You know, you always start off less because you know it, it drives me crazy when I hear you know stories from people who I know. I was out in Vegas last week. I took this gummy and it ended up, I was in my room for five hours. Well, first off, what's, what was the gummy size? Well, it was 25 milligrams. I said, why did you start with 25 milligrams? Are you kidding me? You know what I mean? They they probably had a 2.5% milligram in there to begin with, a 2.5 milligrams and a, a five. And you should always start lower because once you eat it in your body, it's not coming out. Until it- Gummies, chocolate bars, they are scary in my mind because people don't realize that it takes a little bit longer. And I, I can relate. And I know that I've done some silly things, too, and then definitely suffered the consequences. Absolutely. And that is not what you want. And I, I'm hoping that we, we reach a point, though, where the industry providers start to recognize. And I know why it's done, because, you know, we do it in everything. We put sugar in milk now. You know what I mean? And, 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 you know, the, 
the the food industry has literally changed the taste buds of human beings. I mean, you know, the last course, especially in the last 10 years, I mean, if you can go back 20 years ago, you'll find that, you know, a bottle of Coke had, I don't know, probably five to six grams of sugar or, and now there's like, you know, there's 13, 14, 100 grams of sugar. Yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> and so for us to put a hundred grams of sugar around cannabinoids and think that the cannabinoids are going to work the same way, we're fooling ourselves. And so many people in this industry are producing edibles and trying to sweeten them up where I think that when we finally start to recognize the fact that the sugar is what's really most detrimental in this process, then maybe we will go back to what nature provided. Yeah, I, I've not tasted a sweet cannabis plant yet grown. You know, you got to add the sugar to it. So it was working pretty well by itself before we put the sugar in it. So I try to stay away from that. Um, and, well, it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing, the component of cannabis, that there is a medical component to it, and there's also a recreational component to it. And that, yeah. you know, and, and that is very separate in my mind, right? Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about that, since you brought it up. Talk about how you see that the two differ. Well, I see my role as educating on the medical cannabis side. Absolutely. Okay. And that's and, me as a physician. Right. And then, uh, but as a physician... You know that people do consume things recreationally. Alcohol, that's recreational. I've not heard anybody ever say alcohol is medical. And, you know, in the recent studies that have come out now suggesting that no level of alcohol is good for you rather than there's little bits and a little bit of alcohol is good for you. Um, But as an adult, should I not or should people not have the right to choose what they do recreationally? So absolutely, what I what my feeling on it is, and I'm not an addiction psychiatrist, but I do believe that everyone's, whether it's addiction or dependence or use, is different. It's not a one-size-fits-all, you know, abuse situation when you are a recreational user of cannabis or alcohol or anything, right? And that is my take on it, that not everybody who smokes or vapes or takes edibles is going to become dependent or addicted. Right. And that is something that I feel needs to change among a lot of medical practitioners. If cannabis is lumped in with the substances of abuse, how could it be viewed as a medical option? Right. And, you know, let, let's talk a little bit because I think that's one of the myths. You, you break down a lot of mixed myths in your book. Let's talk about some of those that you break down, starting with this idea that um, cannabis is not addictive at all because I think that we've now proven that cannabis can be psychologically addictive, not necessarily as physically addictive as say opioids, which we do know because opioids literally find their way into, we, we detect opioids in your bone mass. So, you know, we know that over time you shed bone and that's where it actually re-excites, you know, that need to have more opioid Whereas cannabis stores in our fatty tissue, at least that's what we know so far. We don't know everything, but let's say that it stores in your fatty tissue and we know how fast your body can can kind of you know shed fat. Metabolize through it. Metabolize fat. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about that myth of whether or not it can be addictive or not addictive. Well, like I said, I think everyone's addiction or dependence is unique and individual and lumping it all together is a, in my mind, a mistake. I think that those types of ideas need to evolve and change, but they've been long held for sure. But I think that, um, you know, I always believe in moderation and balance and trying to be brain and body healthy. Right. And understanding, you know, it's all about like good, healthy lifestyle habits. Right. And understanding how important good nutrition and diet are and, you know, um, exercise and sleep and right, all of those types of things that can help you live a better and more healthy lifestyle. Right. And keeping your brain and body healthy. But I think that, you know, I cannot and will not say like you cannot consume alcohol or you cannot do this or that. That's not my role. But, you know, I do want to put out there that, like, there are there are dangers that we have to figure out. And there are, you know, cautions and maybe your body chemistry will not react well to it. And, you know, your um, 
whether it's alcohol or whether it's nicotine or things like that, right? I mean, it's definitely part of a much larger discussion. You know, you cover in your book, you know, some of the tips that I'm almost out of time, but some of the tips that you can utilize on how to talk to your teenager about cannabis use. Can you share a couple of those? Oh, yes. It's so, so important that you really need to understand what's going on with your kids. You know, you have to certainly observe, right? You need to be an observer and understand if their behavior has changed, right? If their grades are falling or if they're becoming more isolative, wanting to be alone, not not hanging out with the friends that they had. You know, you need to ask questions. You need to be involved, right? And definitely, certainly if, if it hits you over the head and your kid, it you know, like the school calls you and says, here's what we found, here's what's happened. You need to have an open, honest conversation, right? You don't want kids um, doing things that can be harmful, right? And young brains are definitely, we need to protect them. We need them to develop appropriately and fully, right? Um, but so you need to be, you need to have an open and honest dialogue with your with your children. And especially if something like that happens, you need to be, I, I in my mind, you need you need to be direct. You need to be honest. You need to ask questions. You can't be, uh, well, I'll, I'll stick it under the rug. And maybe they will need support from you or support from other people, therapists or um, you know coaches or guidance counselors, social workers in schools, all these types of things. Schools need to be involved too. And, you know, it, it takes a village to raise our kids. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Singer, I can't thank you enough for being a part of the show today. The book is called The Brain on Cannabis, What You Should Know About Recreational Medical Marijuana. If people wanted to reach out to you and get some information, how, where could they go? Well, so my Instagram site is up. It's Dr. Rebecca Siegel. And you can also, that will, that will um, link to my website, drmeccasegal.com. And I have the, my book, The Brain on Cannabis is on Amazon. So those are, those are all different ways. Okay, for sure. And, um, you know, I want to let you know, you're, you're always invited here if you want to come back and we can talk a little bit more because I've got so many more questions for you, but I, I ran out of time so quickly. Um, I would love that. Absolutely. I'd love to have you back again. And, and I want to thank you on behalf of all of our viewers for uh, giving us the information that you've given us. And the book, again, give out the title one more time. The Brain on Cannabis. The Brain on Cannabis. Okay. Well, you know, you heard it here. And anytime you want to get some information, you can reach out to Dr. Siegel herself and she will respond to you. And um, I'd say go out and get a copy of the book and read through it to give you a better understanding and help you and your family navigate this really tough space. Thank you again, Dr. Siegel, for being a part of the show today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And you, make sure you tune in to the next edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.